0: Hey there, welcome to night school. We got a slow gray day on our hands. And you know, I, I, I readily admit lately that I've just been looking for things that disturb me. <laughs> when it comes to what I'm reading about, what I'm paying attention to, it's it's that staring into the abyss idea. You know, where you're looking at things that you know even if you don't know they're going to upset you, there's a pretty high chance. You're rolling the dice in a game where it's like, you're either going to feel ambivalent, (laughs) conflicted, or just outright disturbed. And I've been doing that lately, the last couple weeks for sure. And that's in contrast to a month ago, because a month ago, I spent two weeks where I didn't talk to anybody. like I only responded to messages that were of the utmost importance. I was doing a lot of writing in my spare time, and I wasn't paying attention to anything. And that was nice in its own way, but that's not sustainable for me. And I think there is something important about looking at things that bother you. You just want to know that you're doing it. I mean, I still think about, I used to go to this bar where my friend worked. She was the main bartender there. And so I would just hang out and drink. And it was kind of an upscale place, not the kind of place I would ever hang out. But I had a good time there. I would draw and just hang out and talk to my friend. and But uh, I got to know everybody there through my friend. And uh, her boss, the owner, was a really nice woman. She was older. She was a, a mother. And uh, she was really nice. But something she would do And not not like, I mean, this, this happened maybe once or twice, but still I could tell it was just sort of how she operates. And I, and I know a lot of people who do this specifically women who are mothers or women of a certain age, but maybe this applies to everybody now with the internet being what it is. But anyway, this woman, she, she would hang out, she would sit at the bar where I was the owner and she would kind of go through the news and just read every horrible story in the news in this very alarming way and and it wasn't very political i mean maybe there was a little bit of that but it was it was stuff like oh my god this oh this kid in africa this kid in africa like a an eel came out of his stomach and oh my god his family didn't have any the hospital was a million miles away you know stuff like that like stuff that's just you know, it's, it's, there's not even any way to spin it. It's just stuff that's sad. (laughs) Or, Or there was something too about like if somebody, if there was a shooting, like she would read that. But I was sitting there one time and she was just going through and reading like this went on for a half hour, which doesn't sound like a long time. But when it's a half hour of somebody just going through the news cycle, cherry picking horrible stories, I was just like, "Whoa, yeah, this is that's something that people do in a in a way that isn't even that isn't self-aware. Not not like not that it's lacking, not that it's impolite necessarily, but it's just interesting. Like I'm going to read you a list of horrible things. And a lot of people do that. A lot of us do that where we we seek out things that will upset us. And that describes so much, especially with the information overload we have." We seek out information that disturbs us. Part of that is that negativity bias, and it might not even be that you're seeing that much more. Like, you might see just as many things that you feel okay with, positive about, maybe even neutral, ambivalent. You just, you don't care, maybe. But, you know, even a small minority of information that is negative will be what stands out to you. It's just how we operate. It's difficult to get beyond that. And I find that sometimes trying too hard to avoid the negative, well, that becomes another form of attachment. You know, there is that easy come, easy go approach. And you have to have that with regard to positive feelings as much as negative. And the nice thing about neutrality the nice thing about, and, and and this is something that Stoicism, Puranism this is something the Greeks emphasized, as well as the Buddhists. You'll read about it in the Bhagavad Gita, so it's Eastern in general, as well as Greek, and there's mutual influence between those things. Like they discovered in a, I'm trying to think of where it was, it was, I believe a Buddhist temple they found in some cave, and it had ancient carvings and statues of the different, it might have been a, a Hindu, I don't, I don't remember what it was, I don't, this is a while ago, and I just saw, I saw photos and everything, so it does exist, but anyway, it was either a Buddhist or Hindu temple inside of a cave, kind of an altar, maybe not a temple, but an altar, and it, it featured the different gods, and one of them was in Greek dress. Like, and it Not just it looked like Greek dress, it was deliberately carved so that it was wearing Greek clothing. And I thought that was so interesting that they would have incorporated Greek dress. So it shows there was mutual influence, that somehow they were aware of each other's ideas. I'm sure historians have been able to make some of those connections, I just haven't seen it. But it's not a surprise to me that there there was some sort of connection there, and that somebody at least was aware of it. So, you know, you'll see that with the Greeks, where it's like Pyrrhonism, Stoicism emphasizes you know, not letting your emotions overtake you, not being too attached to positivity, but also not being too attached to negativity. Because if you're too attached to positivity, you're going to be too attached to negativity. To be attached to one is to be attached to both. And the nice thing about that neutrality is that you're not attached to it. You achieve it by being less attached, if not completely detached. So it's not something you actually have to work to gain. You don't have to work to gain neutrality. You shouldn't have to work to be stoic. That kind of defeats the whole purpose. And uh, But uh, yeah, to be attached to the good is to be attached to the bad. Those are two sides of the same coin. But the thing about that is you can see where, you know, I would never call myself a stoic. I've been described that way. A lot of people who meet me say, you're very stoic. Girls say that a lot. I just like it when anybody knows that word, to be honest. That's a pretty common word. A lot of people know what it means. But if somebody ever just has that word available to use, I appreciate it. But people will say that to me. People who have known me forever sometimes will even describe me that way. But I would never call myself a Stoic. Like, I don't practice Stoicism. I'm not a puranist. You know, I don't subscribe to that. In the same way, I don't necessarily subscribe to Buddhism. But I can read about those things and say, okay, this resonates with me. This not only describes me in a certain way, it also gives me something to aspire to. And pay attention to when you feel that way. When you're interested in something, and you say to yourself, okay, this feels like it already speaks to certain qualities that I have, but it also emphasizes other qualities that I'd like to have, or a more improved or more fully rendered version of what already fits me. Pay attention to things like that. I think... When you when you have that feeling that something is both describing you as you are and giving you something to aspire to, wow, that's that's a valuable asset. And so I, I do feel that way about some of those beliefs, and I'm not an expert in them or anything like that, but they do uh, they just do fit into my life in some way. But I I see some people like you'll see these guys who are kind of philosophy nerds. They're usually young. They're usually, you know, they're, they're often college students, they're often young men, and they'll be like, I'm a Stoic. They'll call themselves some kind of ism, and you can tell they're trying very hard to be that thing. Like, they're trying very hard to be a Stoic man, because the thing about me is like, while I, val- I think I'm a naturally Stoic person, and I also do you know, operate in a way that emphasizes that sometimes. Like, I do take that with me out into the world, being a Stoic person. I'm willing to let go of it at any time. And, I mean, I think, I think this show is hopefully a testament to that, where this is not a Stoic show. This ain't a Stoic show. And it would suck if it was. I wouldn't enjoy doing this if I was worried about seeming, if, if I wanted to have a dry inflection and use few words but i see where some people get into those ideas and like they they really wrap themselves up very tightly and i think that can be good i mean it's like when i look at people who are young and i and i see them kind of maybe like falling into a certain pattern or even a trap i don't even see that as a bad thing cuz they're young and they're they're going to go through that it's like I was talking about on a recent episode, like seeing this interview I did where for whatever bizarre reason, I was very critical of meditation and people who meditate. And I look back on that and I'm like, what business did you have thinking that way? And, and look how you feel now. You feel completely different about it. You do it every day. You practically feel like preaching about how everybody should meditate. So, But I don't look back and be like, you shouldn't have thought that way. You shouldn't have had this weird thought, this weird opinion about meditation when you were younger. I just look back on that and I think, like, that was was necessary in some way. And if for no other reason than the fact that I can look back on that now and say, that is actually something that has measurably changed about me. Something highly specific. It's almost like I said that back then so that I could look back on it now. Because I have no idea why I thought it was so important to talk shit about meditation. I have no idea why that was important to me at that time. Except for maybe just making myself seem, you know, unique. I don't know. I don't know the reason. But it almost feels like it was necessary for me to have that opinion then so that I could look now and say, Oh, hey, you know what? That's a black and white change in the span of 10 years in the span of just part of my adulthood. Between my mid twenties to my mid thirties, I can say that I used to think meditation was stupid. I still think it's stupid, <laughs> but it's it's <laughs> in an incredibly it's it's an inc- incredibly valuable stupidity. Someone would hear that and be like, well, "You th- you think meditation's stupid?" No, of course not. I don't take it that seriously though either. Because for me to take meditation too seriously now would just be a version of that kid who takes Stoicism too seriously and it becomes attached to Stoicism. When the whole idea behind Stoicism is to not be attached, to not be attached to your emotions, to not be attached to your beliefs. But right now, I do feel that I'm staring at the abyss more than. More than you typically should, and it's not sustainable. To do that, you have to take breaks. Right now, I just I don't see any break though, because honestly, and you know this is, might just be how things are, but I'm not terribly interested in a lot of other things right now. Like when I think about what I want to do, I don't feel like being creative in a traditional way right now. I don't feel like drawing. I don't feel like recording. I just don't feel it in me right now. And sometimes it's good to power through that. But for me, its I, I kind of know. As someone who doesn't depend on that, I don't depend on doing those things. I kind of know when the right time is to just commit to it, even if I don't feel like it. It's like working out. It's like meditation. Ugh. It is. It's like anything like that. It's like any discipline where it's, you know, you kind of know like today for example, like today's one of those days where I don't feel like working out. It's a day where I, on my schedule today is a weightlifting day. I don't write it out, but I lift weights like every other day. And uh today would be the day when I work out. I really don't feel like it. It's this gray, slow day. I don't have much energy, and there are days like today where I would say do it anyway. And that's usually when it feels best. When you don't feel like doing it, but you power through it, you feel like you accomplished more, because you did. You do accomplish more when you don't feel like doing something, and then you do it anyway. Even though the measurable aspect, like the the lifting of the weights, working out your muscles, even though that's in theory the same, whether you're excited to work out or you don't want to, it's like you had to get through the—by by having to, like, overcome that voice in your head that's saying not to do it, that itself is a big accomplishment. Because that's what stops most people from doing things. So when you don't want to do something, you do it anyway. That's a bigger accomplishment. But sometimes, like today, for example, like if I don't end up working out tonight, that's fine. I can feel that that's fine if I just don't do the thing that I would normally do today. And creativity is a little different because I've tried to do it on a schedule before. I've tried to like be like, I'm gonna set aside two hours every day, an hour every day, where I do this. And that was surprisingly good. Like I think I did some great work, honestly, when I did that. It was actually very cool to be committed in that way. But it wasn't sustainable. You know, it was kind of an experiment, um, but enough about why I decide to be creative or not creative. Right now, the point is, is that I'm finding myself like like seeking out information that will disturb me, and there's a lot of it right now. And I've I've been questioning myself as to whether I'm being paranoid. I don't think I am. I think I'll be thinking about something a certain way. Because I run the risk when I talk about politics, when I talk about where our culture and society are at, somebody who's coming from a different point of view or a different perspective or doesn't pay attention to the things I pay attention to might be like, you're out of your mind. It's like I was talking about a friend of mine, a good friend who's a great guy. It's it's nothing, there's nothing personal to this. But just that this year, earlier this year when he and I would talk and if I would start to say, oh, I don't, things seem like they're Things seem bad. I could tell he doesn't really pay attention to the same things I pay attention to. It was kind of like, "What do you mean? Like, you're not worrying too much about the state of the world, are you?" You know, where it was like, I don't know. It's it's hard to communicate about that stuff. You know, if you're not just naturally on the same page about that stuff, it's very difficult to communicate. And honestly, and it's not, and, and there's no reason to force it. Like, if you're talking to somebody who's just coming from a different place. And you get along. There's no reason to force that stuff. And often it's too vague to even describe if you don't have the same sense for it. But I do worry that, like, I mean, not even about how I'm perceived, but just in my own head, sometimes I'm paranoid about being paranoid. That's how I'd put it. That's the best way to put it. I'm sometimes paranoid about being paranoid. And that's how I feel right now. I'm kind of paranoid about being paranoid. But when I think about it, though, it's like, I don't think anything is gripping me. I don't think anything is grabbing me and leading me to an irrational thought. I think I'm just being hyper vigilant, And right now, it seems like an incredibly... I mean, for one, it's just interesting. By staring into the abyss right now, it's of great interest to me. And that's always the attraction of the abyss. And, uh, but, see you have to be ready. I don't know. And and things too, like a switch will go off. Like sometimes I'll be in a habit or a pattern and I'm just like, Oh, this is what it's going to be like indefinitely. It's kind of like when you're sick, where when you're sick, sometimes you'll be sitting there and you'll think like, this is how I've always felt. (laughs) You know, you'll have a cold or, you know, you'll have something like that. You'll have a cold or the flu and you're sitting there miserable. Reality is feels so different your perceptions feel so different when you're sick and you'll be sitting there and you're like oh i've always felt this way i'm always going to feel this way this is just how it is now and then you wake up one day and you're substantially better and you forget but it's funny like how we're feeling in the moment often convinces us that we've always felt that way like it kind of consumes our entire not just our entire present but sometimes when we're feeling that way it consumes even the past and the future. And you end up thinking like, this is just how it's always going to be. And then just like waking up one day and you feel a lot better and you forget about how bad you felt one day, like I'll, I'll be kind of, I feel like focusing on things I shouldn't focus on and feel glued to them, especially current events, politics. And then one day I wake up and I'm like, Oh yeah, I don't feel like looking at that today. And then that becomes a pattern. Like talking about a month ago, spending two weeks of not looking at anything. I didn't decide to do that. I didn't do something ridiculous like, oh, I'm, I'm going to reduce my screen time. Oh, I'm going to put my, my smartphone in the phone drawer so I don't look at it. No, I just, the will to do that just kind of lessened. Kind of like, I mean, I haven't, I still haven't looked at uh, like Instagram or Facebook, and I guess like, a, you know, it's, it's getting close to, a, I guess, a month and a half, over a month and a half, whatever it is, I'm not actually counting. I did actually, I had to get, someone messaged me on Instagram last night, and it was the first time I'd seen anything on there, just, I had to like, it was funny, it was like, I, f- I felt like I had to run past the posts to get to the messages. I was like, I don't want to see any posts. I want to just get to the messages because I want to respond to my friend. But I saw one post and it was by one of my best friends, Cameron, and it was just a photo of nature. And I was like, I'm going to like that. (laughs) I was like, I can't just look at Cameron's beautiful photo of nature. I mean, this guy's one of my best friends, uh, a very pure individual. And I was like, I have to like that post. Because it's not about like having some rule. I didn't make some decision to be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend this long not looking at social media. It just, I got busy with other things and I just got out of the habit of doing it. And right now it feels good. Like it feels good to avoid the collective psychosis. Even though I like most of the people I know. I like most of them. It's still just right now doesn't feel like a good time to do that. But it's not like a formal decision where it's like, I got an app on... You'll hear about people say this stuff. It's like it's like the, the mental version of a Fitbit. It's like the psycho-technological version of a Fitbit when people are like, I got this app that tells me my screen time. And that way I can have less screen time. You know, when I hear people talk about that, it's the same thing as when they're like, I got this many steps in today. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, if that's what you need... Like, I have all kinds of things that other people might think are stupid that help me. So, I'm not like, like, if, a, like, I've said about this before, where even though I'll talk shit about Fitbits and those things that count your steps, and that's fundamentally different from my approach to fitness, if that's helping you and that's making a difference, nothing I can say can take that away from you. And if, if somebody, let's say some theoretical phantom is listening to this show and they're using a Fitbit, and it's helping them and they know it's helping them and i um, and i make fun of fitbits if they think if hearing me make fun of a fitbit makes them stop using it well they have bigger problems than a fitbit if you're susceptible to a person just joking or making fun of something that works for you you have bigger problems than just that thing itself if you're sus- sus- and that's a that's a lot of problems in this world in a nutshell is it's like there are things that work for people, but their friends say something. I mean, that's happening politically, where there's people who deep down have certain principles that they know are right for them. But the fact that other people are criticizing those principles, the fact that maybe a certain amount of social acceptance forces you to take on other principles, other ideas, You know, you know what works for you. And I think it's it's it go, this applies down the board. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I kind of just follow my, my gut on these things. And right now, I know what I'm doing isn't sustainable, like, like just paying attention to everything in the news, which is not something I normally do, and I actually advise against it. Like, I'm not that much different from that woman who owns the fancy bar I was talking about and used to sit there reading the worst headlines. Although I will say, like, to my credit, I will say to my credit that I do think I curate media and information in a way that works for me. And that's, I guess, the only justification I really have for it. I'm not just reading about every kid who died a horrible death, you know what I mean? It's like... I I think you have a sense, you get a sense for like what's morbid, and I I don't just mean morbid in in the death sense, I mean anything that kind of gives you a feeling of morbidity, I'm avoiding those things, but it does seem, you know, because there is an infection, And that's how I refer to it. Politics are an infection. I've said it before. I'm infected. I don't like how much I'm talking about current events. I don't like how much I'm talking about these ideas that have just consumed everybody. These debates, the culture war, the political divide. I really don't like how much I'm talking about it. But you reach a certain point where you just have to give in sometimes. And this is a period where it's difficult not to do that as it's consumed everything. But I readily admit I'm infected. I will readily admit I'm infected. I don't like that, but sometimes you just have to admit it. Just like getting a a real infection. Just like getting, I mean, I think this infection is just as real, but like getting a physical wound that becomes infected. You don't like that it's infected. You're not proud of the fact that it's infected. But, but you have an infection. And that's how I feel right now. I feel like I have the infection that other people have, and I'm dealing with it in my own way. And I guess it's, it's reassuring, but also disconcerting that everywhere I look, I see this infection. And I pay attention to a broad range of people. You know, I listen to a lot of shows, and I'm just around the house, I pretty much, when I'm not doing my own show, I almost continually have a show of some kind on. Whether it's a podcast, a lecture, online radio, a YouTube show, I almost always have somebody talking in the background of what I'm doing, and I don't take that for granted. Yeah, we've been able to listen to radios as we go about our day our entire lives. We've been able to listen to the radio. But I don't take for granted the fact that I can curate, there's that word again, I can curate what I listen to, and have my own talk radio going on at all times, and even participate in my own small way, doing this. But what I've noticed is that no matter who I pay attention to right now, and these aren't people who are all in the same niche, or they're not people from the same background, they're people who are known for different things. But they all have the infection, too. Almost all of them have the infection. And if they're not talking about current events and politics and the culture in this way, and not that all of them agree, either. I don't mean to suggest they all have the same views. Like I said, this is a broad range of people. But even if they're not indulging in that, They'll say something that makes it a point that they're not doing that. Like they'll, they'll talk about how they're not doing that. You know what I mean? Or it's like if they're not if they're not like obsessing over current events, there's a good chance they're talking about the fact that they're not discussing current events. like I kind of do. See, I do both. But last night I, I felt like I'd, I'd been listening to so many shows that just deal with this stuff. Even shows that aren't about this end up talking about it because that's the infection. The infection is, you know, it's far more, um, what's it called? It's it's far more, I mean, you see people out there who are like, the real pandemic is blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I kind of take that view, honestly. I feel like the real pandemic, the real pandemonium is psychological, sociological, But I was just like, man, I've, I've been listening to so many people talk about this stuff. And there's a guy that I've been a fan of now for about a year and a half. I first found his show in early 2020, Rick Glassman. And I have no idea how I found him. He has kind of a cult following, you know, as far as the Internet goes, as far as he's not as far as I know, he's not well known. He's. A comedian and sitcom actor like he's had he's had small roles on fairly big sitcoms that I've never seen or heard of but he's done that and a lot of the people he has as guests on his show they're people from that world he manages to somehow like for somebody who's not terribly well known he manages to get some big people as well as people you've never heard of and it's on it's it's one of the best shows I've found in a long time you know he's he's a Jewish guy around my age He's very goofy, legitimately obsessive compulsive, and his show is in his apartment and he brings people over, but he's, it's, it's part of the show. It's part of the humor, but you can also tell it's authentic that he's, he's legitimately germophobic and obsessive compulsive, extremely neurotic and not in a stereotypical, like he's obviously Jewish and he, he'll mention that, but it's not the, the stereotypical Jewish neuroticism which, you know, a lot of Jewish comedians play on. It's, I don't know, he, you know, it's like, he's, he's almost like the modern version of that. And it's refreshing. But he also claims to be on the autism spectrum, which is funny, because he's very outgoing, engaging and sharp. And he seems to have benefited from getting this autism diagnosis. I would never assume he's autistic. I mean, he's awkward. He can be but not really though. He's he's that's the thing actually is he's way more sociable he's way more responsive than most normal people I know. Like he's got way more going for him socially. He's way more charismatic and engaging. And maybe part of it's the fact that he's performing to some degree on the on his show, but he's just talking to people. But it's weird cuz I it, you know, if, if getting an autism diagnosis is a tool that works for him, he seems to have benefited from that. It seems to have explained certain things to him about his personality. But it's it's kind of funny to me because just watching it, I'm like, this guy seems like he has he has his system figured out. He has his own system figured out. And, yeah, he's a bit eccentric. He's a bit goofy. Maybe he has awkward interactions with people. But It's just kind of funny it either, it either says that I actually know far less about autism Than I assume I do Because I'm not that interested in it Even though you can't, go, you can't walk two feet now Without somebody talking about autism And I'm dead serious Like you, you practically can't have a conversation with somebody now <laughs> Without autism coming up But you know I, I don't necessarily know I, I've known autistic people I've known people on the spectrum as they say But maybe I don't know as much about it as I assume, because this guy doesn't strike me as particularly autistic. He's just neurotic and obsessive. But what I like about the show is he's very zany, and sometimes too much. Like, it's one of those things where sometimes I'm like, oh man, he's getting a little too zany. But that's the beauty of these shows. That's the beauty of the world we're in, where it's like someone can rub you the wrong way, but you're a fan of them overall. You know, it's like things aren't as edited and condensed. I mean, his show's edited. It actually has a lot of effects and stuff. It's kind of goofy in that way. But anyway, um, yeah, I've been watching it for about a year and a half. I think I've seen every episode because when I was really sick in February 2020 with what may have been coronavirus, I have no idea, I was, I was just going through the backlog of his show and watching all the episodes. So I think I've seen every single episode he's ever done. But anyway, his show, it's, it's good in the sense that like he deals with some kind of, you know, he's obviously on the left. Everybody on his show is that way. Some people more than others. Like sometimes he'll have these young, I don't even know who they are. Like they're people who have been in comedy movies I've never seen or they're on shitty modern day sitcoms. And like he'll have them on and they're clearly because they're tr- there's he'll have people on who are still trying to make it in Hollywood. And as a result their politics are just embarrassing, and so he'll have people like that on, and sometimes I can't deal with that, I can't really watch that, if it's somebody who's too embarrassing in that way, but he himself is obviously on the left, but he's not afraid of kind of, there's nothing offensive about him, there's nothing shocking about his humor, he doesn't say anything that would truly offend anybody, not even the most, I don't even feel like anything he says would be that offensive, even by today's standards, today's mainstream standards. But he, he's also not afraid to go into uncomfortable areas. And what I like most about his show, it's got that kind of um, bathos idea that I've been talking about lately where the ability to go from a very serious subject to something that's utterly goofy in the, at the drop of a hat. And it's just seamless. Because like, that's something I've noticed with people, and it's very difficult with humor, where they kind of have this expectation that this is the funny part. This is the serious part. Like, they almost treat interacting with another human being or watching another human being as if, like, you need to, like, have a beginning and ending to something that needs to be funny. You can't seamlessly go in and out of humor and seriousness because it's too confusing. You need, like, the funny part should be completely funny, the serious part should be completely serious, and they should be separate. But Rick Glassman, he's very good at the the bathos, where it's like he can go from something very deeply personal and serious to something that's just stupidly zany. And like I said, I don't even find everything he does that funny, but he he is very funny. And I've seen people compare him to Andy Kaufman, but that's just, I'm a huge Andy Kaufman fan. I don't know, I think that's people not knowing what else to say. Because his humor, it's very, as they say, meta and when people encounter somebody like that, I think they have a tendency to be like, "Oh, he's doing an Andy Kaufman," because somehow there are very few points of reference for doing that, which speaks to its credit, you know. Because I think that sort of humor—not—not that, not that there's really one specific type of Andy Kaufman humor, which I think is what's so great about him. It's not—it's not like there's one specific niche where if you do that, you're doing an Andy Kaufman style bit. You know, I don't think that that's actually how it works. But it, it kind of speaks to the, the importance of Andy Kaufman, that there isn't like a whole set of Andy Kaufmans. Like, it's, it's really not a genre. You know, because I think the success and failure of an approach like that, the su- it's, it's so difficult to do it successfully especially in a way that speaks to normal people, which Andy Kaufman did. And so people like that. They either, if they're good at it, they're not necessarily going to achieve success. They're going to kind of rest in some niche or in some obscure area. But so many people are bad at it, and I think that's one of the reasons, which is why like a guy like this, Rick Glassman, he's not doing an Andy Kaufman thing at all. It's just that people don't have many frames of reference and because we do rely so heavily on comparison and reference, like when we see something that we can't define, it makes us comfortable to be able to say, oh, it's like this. It's almost like the legal system using precedent where if there's precedent for something, it kind of justifies why we like it where it's like, oh, well, because he's doing something in the tradition of Andy Kaufman, which I don't think this guy is, I don't even know if he's an Andy Kaufman fan, I assume he is, but just, it's, it's one of those things where I think just, because people did that with Sam Hyde as well, like when Sam Hyde was kind of at his peak, even before that, you know, even when Sam Hyde kind of first came onto the scene, and people were like, wow, this guy's blowing everybody's minds, I mean, and he is offensive, but I saw some comparisons to Andy Kaufman, and I you know, I did an episode way back when, an early every night's a school night episode, I remember talking about Sam Hyde for a minute, and I may have even said that he, he kind of had an Andy Kaufman vibe, I don't think so, I think I myself was just trying to do exactly what I was describing a second ago, which is you you feel this need to reinforce something by making reference to something else that somehow places it in a certain context. And it's interesting because, you know, when I think about my own sense of humor, and I promise to keep this short because the worst thing in the world is me analyzing my own humor, almost as bad as talking about the creative process. But, you know, like, I, I wouldn't... I would not be offended if somebody thought that my humor on this show, for example, like... Was not comparable, but just kind of in the same general realm as like that Andy Kaufman approach. Not that it's similar, not that I'm even successful at it, but I wouldn't be offended by that. But it's interesting because I consider myself an Andy Kaufman fan from the time I was a kid. I got into Andy Kaufman as a a pretty young kid, thanks to Taxi. You know, people have said like, oh, that was just, uh, he hated, he hated doing Latka." Because all the normal people would just ask him to do latke all the time. And like the hardcore Andy Kaufman fans, or maybe not hardcore Andy Kaufman fans, but like Andy Kaufman fans who are trying to like act like they, they're they better than other people. Like you'll sometimes see them say, and these, these people do exist. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Like they'll act like Andy Kaufman's more well-known personas aren't as good or that somehow like they took away from the greater impact of what he was doing. I don't think so at all. I think my own experience with Andy Kaufman is a testament to that, which is that I was introduced to him through Taxi, a show that I still love. I love Taxi. But I was introduced to Andy Kaufman through Taxi. And that led me to dig deeper. And I think Lotka is great. I think Lotka is a funny character. Lotka and Vic, the alter ego, they did that before Urkel. You know, everybody talks about how on Urkel on Family Matters is that what it is? Family Matters right? But how Urkel and Stefan were these characters where it's like oh he's he's the nerdy he's a he's a nerdy Urkel and then he's the he's his alter ego is Stefan, and Taxi did that. Not that they were I mean that idea is just I mean that's a a classic idea like alter egos Jekyll and Hyde and all that. You know, it's not like I'm saying <laughs> I'm not saying Family Matters stole from Taxi, uh, but still like. That was done in a very similar way on Taxi, where he was Latka, this goofy Eastern European immigrant who couldn't speak English, and then he was Vic, you know, the, the the smooth nightclub ladies' man. And it was done pretty much identically to what they did on Urkel, because that's it's juxtaposition. It's like, wouldn't it be funny if the awkward, goofy, or nerdy guy had an alter ego where he was just a smooth alpha male, you know, that's just kind of a class. it's a classic juxtaposition, classic contrast. But anyway, with me, like, you know, just the fact that I, I probably never would have found Andy Kaufman as a kid, if it weren't for Latka, I never would have been introduced to him if it wasn't through his most well known roles, the things that normal people celebrated. Because that's what was on Nick at Night. That's what was more easily accessible to me, especially in the pre-internet era. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like a, a band gets famous for a, a hit song, and people are like, that's their ballad. You only like them because that's that was their pop song, and it's that's not their real sound. That's not what makes them actually good. But a band having a hit song sometimes is the bridge, you know, that's what brings people in. And some of those people will be like, oh, you know, I like the hit song. But it was only through the, and it was only through the hit song that I was able to realize there was a whole world beyond that song. So that happens, but it's interesting, like, because I never planned on doing a show, obviously, I mean, I never, I never planned on doing a podcast like when I was young, like I never thought like I, I want to do comedy. I want to talk for, a, you know, I want to do a show. I never thought that way. You know, it's it's only because this is a form of pirate radio that I'm even doing it. So like I never thought about my life. Like I never thought about I never thought about like having a sense of humor as something that was influenced by somebody I never thought of it as an art. And I still don't like I'm not a comedian. Like obviously humor is is a big part of this show. I wouldn't do this show. Like my goal with this show is to be funny. For me, if nobody else like my goal, I'll just you know, if, if there's other stuff that's interesting, like the humor to this show is everything to me. It's the reason this show gives me catharsis is to make fun of things. But like I looking back, like I wouldn't say that like I'm influenced by Andy Kaufman, even though I loved Andy Kaufman from an early age. It's just one of those interesting things. I didn't really mean to go on such a long Andy Kaufman tangent, but I uh, I don't know. I, I just I always think about it when somebody compares somebody to Andy Kaufman. Like even if that person was influenced by Andy Kaufman, it's always kind of an interesting comparison because it's it's hard to pin down, and it's usually because we lack other references like that. It's like Andy it's not that people are necessarily similar to Andy Kaufman, he simply represents something. And maybe he represents newness. You know, I, I, maybe I think that's it. I think I kind of figured it out right now, where it's like Andy Kaufman represents the frontier. He refer, he he Andy Kaufman represents this sort of wild frontier as to how you can behave and conduct yourself, especially in a way that it is a performance. And when people make comparisons between Andy Kaufman and modern day comedians, I think that's basically what they're getting at. It's not that they're actually seeing Andy Kaufman's influence on this person. It's just that you kind of feel like you're watching somebody who operates in a new frontier or a wild frontier. It might not even be new, but it's wild. And you know what? I don't know if any of my friends, I don't know if anybody else would like Rick Glassman's show, but one th- it's been sort of a good cleanser for me. And like I said, if he has some super, just like, just, just some, he'll have like some new young actor on who's just like towing the liberal line. And I usually turn those off or grit my teeth a little bit. He never has anybody truly controversial. But it's it's a cleanser because it doesn't get too political. I don't think Rick Glassman is that infected by what's going on. And so when I watch it, it's usually a nice contrast to everything else I pay attention to because they don't really get into that subject matter. When it's serious, they're usually exploring psychology, interaction, communication. And, you know, Rick Glassman, he often frames things around his autism diagnosis. But when you get away from that word, like what he's talking about are just the dilemmas of of just any human interaction. And it's refreshing. And I've never actually heard people put it to words in this way. I do highly recommend it. It doesn't always reflect my taste. But I respect that more many times. Like if something can, can catch my attention, that doesn't just fit into my niche, that doesn't just fit into my own personal interests all the time. That actually makes it that much better in my eyes. Because it's not catering to me if something isn't catering to me all the time, but it still keeps my interest. That's amazing. It really is. And so I would describe his show that way. And, uh, but what I'm getting, what I'm going to get to here is I I watched a new episode last night and the guest was a girl, a young woman. I think she, she said she was 30. But, uh, she's a TikTok star and she does impersonations and voices. I guess she's very well known. But she's a TikTok star. I don't have TikTok. I've never looked at it. I see some of the horrible videos that other people will share. Like there are people out there. (laughs) There are people out there who are, are just collecting TikTok videos to share them other places. And some of them are horrifying. The things people are saying and doing. You can just see the... You can see it in their eyes. You know, I keep talking about looking at people's eyes. Remembering how much is communicated through the eyes. Notice how wild animals when you see them in the woods, they look you in the eye. And I don't look people in the eye very much. And that bothers people. But it's because I don't want them to. <laughs> you know, Like, like, I don't. It's because like, I, I feel like a certain invasion, when people stare me in the eye for too long. And that bothers people like they think it's untrustworthy. But it, for me, it's just it's too intense. Sometimes it's too intense to maintain sustained eye contact. And I don't think that an honest conversation requires it but um certain situations yes but if i'm going to find my thoughts i have to be sometimes looking somewhere else i have to be looking down looking to the side like if i'm going to find the right thoughts i can't be distracted by somebody's big eyes staring at me because that's what happens that's actually the reason why i don't sustain eye contact is because I get distracted by people's big, crazy fucking eyes looking at me. Even if they're not big and crazy, it starts to feel that way. But... (laughs) And that's a good example of like why you shouldn't... You should never think that I'm trying to tell anybody to be like me or that I want other people to be like me because I'll just tell you straight up. I don't like sustained eye contact and I don't like eating with other people which are two of the core basic universal everyone always says like never never eat alone always make eye contact and it's like here I am like I like to eat alone and I don't like to make eye contact I don't recommend I don't endorse my lifestyle I don't endorse my my habits but anyway With, um, well, just going back to the show, I don't remember what I was talking about aside from that, just with, with Rick Glassman's show, he had this girl, she's a TikTok star, I was talking about eyes, where, you know, I'll see these videos people share from TikTok, and you can see it in their eyes, and even though I kind of shy away from sustained eye contact, I glance, I I, I look, it's kind of like, you know, a public speaker, they, they say to, like, look at a different person for a second That's kind of how I approach just talking to a person face to face. It's like I'll glance at your eyes just to kind of reconnect every now and again. But I don't like this stare down. It's not a a conversation is not a staring contest. But anyway, uh, these TikTok videos, you can see it in the eyes. And there's a reason why animals look at your eyes. There's a reason why eyes are such a, a primary mode of communication Like I'm walking through the woods and you come across deer. And the interesting thing about deer is they always stare at you. It's not true for every animal. Like I was talking about squirrels and raccoons and like, sometimes they'll look at you. But deer, there's something about them that they stop and they stare at you without fail. They never just run away. They never just mind their own business. Deer always stare at you and it's a very intense stare and I appreciate it. I don't like humans staring at me, but I, I like it. I kind of like it when animals do because you're, you feel a communication. Like if you're in a pure state and an animal is just staring you in the eyes, it's surreal and it's amazing. It's like you feel something. You feel that connection. And I mean the same thing with Batty. You know, getting Batty, it's like he doesn't just look at what I'm doing. He looks at my eyes. So we use eyes as a, a way of gauging each other. And what I see from these TikTok videos that make their rounds is something is wrong in people's eyes. Something is deeply wrong with their eyes. But anyway, this girl, (laughs) that's just something I've noticed. And I notice it particularly with TikTok. And I don't think it's a coincidence that TikTok is what it is and people's eyes look off. Because I believe a lot of the people using TikTok are off their rockers. And I know what I've seen of it is only a small minority of people, maybe. Actually, I don't know that. But um, my entire experience seeing, you know, and and there's a bias to that too, because I mean, since I don't use TikTok, the only TikTok videos I see are ones that somebody has selected because it is crazy. So of course, I'm biased by that view. But this girl who was on the show, I was surprised because she's... Because th- I assume everybody who's famous on TikTok is, v- like, under 30 for sure. I assume they're most, mostly Zomers and young millennials. But this girl, her name is Caitlin something... I have no interest in seeing her videos, but it's probably not entirely different from like the stupid Instagram videos that I do now and again where she does she does voices, but hers are are very much about making fun of the way girls talk, which who better to make fun of the way girls talk than a girl, you know, Uh, but I liked her, you know, I have no interest in her videos and they seem to appeal to a younger crowd But I really enjoyed what she had to say on this show, but interestingly, you know, I was mentioning that Rick Glassman's show is sort of a cleanser for me, where it never delves too deep into the culture war, never really. Every once in a while, they'll talk about, like, things you can say and not say, but it never goes deep into the culture war, it never ventures into politics, never. Never do they actually address politics head-on, but the last couple weeks, it seems impossible to avoid it. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. Something in the last couple weeks, the last few weeks, it feels like politics are completely unavoidable. The infection has just really set in. And so I'm finally getting to the, watching this, this video last night. And interestingly, the entire thing kind of dealt with all this. But you could see that they were both uncomfortable with actually getting into it. Because within the first few minutes, this, I, I can't remember her last name, but her name's Caitlin... And right away she started talking about how like she's extremely paranoid about what she can say and not say and she started talking about like some of the flack she gets from TikTok users for her videos and she gave an example of she said she did a video where she made her eyes cross-eyed and I'm sure it was a completely harmless joke. Like, I doubt that her video of her being cross-eyed was her saying, if you ever come across somebody whose eyes are like this, cross-eyed, kill them because they're evil. They're possessed by the devil and you should slit their throat. Cross-eyed people are evil, just like people with left hands. There's a reason why it's called the left-hand path, because people with left hands are evil. And so are people with cross-eyes. If you see cross-eyes, get your, get your knife out. You know, it's all, I, I really doubt she said that. She was probably just being silly and had her eyes crossed, but she said that people responded and they were like, you know, you're making fun of people with cross eyes, you know, the whole ableist thing, which has gone completely, you know, it's so unhinged. And they were, they were talking on the show. So she was talking about that and like how it upsets her. And she says more and more that people respond to the most benign jokes, the most benign videos she makes with those sorts of responses. And, uh, you know, you could tell that she's a liberal. Like she was talking about, like she said some things that I didn't agree with. But that's fine. You know, that's that's great. I liked her. I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't pursue, I wouldn't follow her Instagram. I wouldn't watch her TikTok videos. But I could tell that she's a reasonable, rational person who's disturbed by the culture war, especially the way the culture war has assaulted comedy. So I could tell that like, this is somebody who values free speech for one. But she was talking about how she made a statement online too about abortion. And this is where I disagree with her, where she said she she has this very black and white view of abortion where she believes that it's a matter, it's it's simply a matter of people wanting to control women's bodies. I believe those people exist. I would never say none of the people who want harsh abortion laws are trying to control women's bodies. You know, so many laws are about control. Obviously, the abortion law is about control. Obviously, it's about imposing your will on people. You know, whether you agree with that or not, because, I mean, that's important. I say this again and again, but it's important not to lose it, which is that... When someone's imposing their will, that can't be debated. There's either evidence of that, that they're imposing their will, or there's not. The question is whether you think that they need to impose their will. It's like I've said about countries becoming more authoritarian because of coronavirus. It's not a question of whether they're more authoritarian. Most countries, especially Western free countries have become more authoritarian in the last year and a half. It's not up for debate. I refuse to have any debate over whether countries have become more authoritarian. They have. The question is whether it's necessary, and that's the question of authoritarianism. Because all authoritarianism is justified by necessity. But people who want to impose their will will claim that it is necessary when it is not, and that's the debate. The debate isn't over whether somebody's imposing their will or not. And so that's the question with abortion. There's no question to me that evangelicals in Texas, not even necessarily evangelicals, because it's actually far more mainstream. And I mean, that's the, the, the dumbest thing of all that is always overlooked, is that there are a lot of women who are against abortion. I have no idea why that's not a bigger talking point. There are a ton of women who are against abortion in Texas, for one. There are probably just as many women in Texas who oppose abortion as men. I don't know. I don't know what the polls say. I don't really trust polls. But I highly doubt that these Christian households in Texas, these, these Christian Republican households in Texas, I really doubt that it's just the husband saying he hates abortion and the wife has to deal with it. I imagine a lot of these guys wives, their daughters agree with them. So that can't be left out. Whether you agree with abortion or not, you can't say that it's a strictly male you know, it's a strictly male concern trying to impose their will on women. You can say that the women the Christian Republican women, and I don't even think it's just Christian Republican women. You don't have to be a Christian Republican to oppose abortion or to have some sort of nuanced take on it. But uh, I don't think that all of these women are necessarily being forced to do that by their husbands. It kind of goes to the burqa thing as well. Well, there are, there are women who say they prefer the burqa. Are they brainwashed? Are they the product of a very repressive culture that has convinced them that that's right? Maybe. Yes. In some cases, absolutely. But you tread on dangerous territory got to stop using that word dangerous because it's it's just been so overused and abused but you you tread on difficult tr- <laughs> you tread on difficult terrain that's better uh, still a DT dangerous territory difficult terrain I'm still using a D and a T to make the same point DDT I'm still giving you a DDT oh. I had a point. Um, You're shredding on dangerous territory, difficult terrain, when a woman comes out in favor of strict abortion laws and you say that she doesn't know what's best for her and she's just brainwashed by men. Because there are strong women who believe that. And they're not just being forced at gunpoint by their husbands to think that way and you see that a lot with you know because the Democrats have made themselves the the party of ethnic minorities you see when an ethnic minority is an outspoken Republican I mean today's a good day to bring that up with Larry Elder in California there were articles calling Larry Elder a white supremacist he's a black man from Compton or something like that. And people are saying that he's a white supremacist because basically because he's a Republican and he's a black man. And that's just a common trait. I mean, the the term Uncle Tom, that's the interesting thing we see a lot of on the left is that when a minority doesn't do what they want, they're even willing to call them a white supremacist. So it just shows you how silly it all is. And that's a poor assumption to make because you actually become the thing that you're supposedly fighting against. Like when you're on the left and you call Larry Elder a white supremacist, you're saying that black man doesn't know what's best for him. He needs my white guiding hand, which isn't that the thing that you're always fighting against? But that's just the irony of it. It's too easy to find examples of that. But we see that with the abortion topic where it's framed as men imposing their will on women. And it's like, what about the women who believe in this too? And I don't see abortion as a yes or no issue. And this woman, Caitlin you know, she made. I guess she she was giving an example to Rick Glassman about like something that she received blowback for. You know, and she had mentioned like the ableist, the the anti ableist activists getting mad at her for making a video where she's cross eyed. But on the other side, she mentioned how she made a statement that abortion was basically a black and white issue, and you either believe in imposing your will on women or not. I don't agree with that. But she said a, a guy responded and like gave this long rambling explanation. Like he gave this, this 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 long rambling response where he was saying it's not that simple for A, B, C, and D reasons. And she read his actual message. She read his actual comment from her phone while she was on this show I was watching, and I agreed with what the guy said. He made excellent points that the abortion debate is not just a yes or no light switch. It's either on or it's off, black and white. It's truly not that. And the guy who responded to her, he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything that indicated he was a, a, even, you know, anti... I, don't, I, I can't even remember what the terms are. But it's like he he said nothing that indicated he was against abortion, just that it was more complicated. And she, on the show, she was like... She's like, I really didn't need this guy to mansplain abortion to me, a woman. And I have to say too, like while she was on this show I was watching, she was wearing a shirt that said hysterical female. So you can kind of see where her stance is on feminism, where she thinks, black, she, she thinks abortion is a black and white issue that is only about Im- men imposing their will on women's bodies. She's wearing a shirt that says hysterical female. I hate that crap. I hate that kind of thing. Like, you know, like, Oh, I'm gonna wear a, a shirt that says hysterical female, but I liked her. That's important for me to say here. Where it was like I thought like the sort of the sort of person who wears a shirt that says hysterical female as a statement, the sort of person who says that abortion is a black and white yes or no issue that only concerns controlling women. I disagree with her on that. And I don't like her shirt. But you know what? I, I really enjoyed listening to her on this show, especially because I didn't agree with her 100%. What helped me agree, what helped me like her is that she clearly valued free speech. I see free speech as, as one of the big unifiers in the culture war, and it, it really is the one—that is my one thing, like, where if somebody is opposed to free speech— I don't mind a nuanced take. I don't mind something that's... that considers different angles. I don't mind somebody who's conflicted about it. I don't mind somebody who is conflicted as to how free speech should be handled. It should be something that we're conflicted about. I don't understand why we're always trying to resolve our conflicted feelings. It's like trying to solve a Zen koan. You realize that the idea is not... To solve a Zen koan. The idea is to move beyond it. You know, to not be weighed down by the duality of that. And the same is true for other forms of conflict where even I, even though I have this very strong opinion on free speech as a human principle, not as a law, not as the First Amendment, it's a human principle that transcends those laws to me. I'm still conflicted about it too. Because I know there's a time and a place to say certain things and to not say them. I know that it's not as simple as being allowed to say whatever you want to say at any given moment. I know that you can't do that. And so I myself have certain conflicts about free speech, my own use of free speech for that matter. But if somebody is conflicted about it, that's better than them simply wanting to restrict it. And there's so many people doing that. So if somebody like, like she, she clearly indicated that she favors free speech. So that helped me like her, even though I don't agree with her necessarily on these other points she was making concerning, concerning, um, not even necessarily feminism, but a certain feminist perspective because she used the word mansplaining, which is a point against her. Here's actually, this is important. This is is actually very important to me. When someone uses the term mansplaining, I don't take them seriously. It's not that I dismiss what they're saying, but if somebody uses that buzzword, mansplaining is maybe one of the best examples of when a buzzword destroys the original meaning behind it. Behind its, you know, it it destroys its original definition. Because I talked about this a while back, how. The reason why we develop catchphrases and buzzwords is because there's something that kind of requires, it's it's an observation, it's something that maybe has taken, maybe you need a paragraph, maybe you need a, an entire sentence to explain what you're observing, and somebody says, oh, that, that's called mansplaining. Like, it's basically, that's the idea, like, women felt that men have a tendency to dismiss what they say and try to explain it themselves even when a woman knows the subject matter or doesn't want an explanation they have a tendency to feel that men do that to them and so somebody came up with the term mansplaining and a light bulb went off where a lot of women and not just women but a lot of women were like oh yeah that's what it is and so when they initially started talking about quote unquote mansplaining which is i mean it falls anything that's man like man cave i mean like all that shit is so stupid. And it poisons you to to say words like that. Um, But, you know, regardless of the way the word sounds, I do believe that it described a certain phenomenon. There is a certain type of man who has a tendency to talk over women to try to tell them things they already know. But men do that to each other too. And that's what's missing from the whole mansplaining thing is that a lot of male on male conversation. Uh, (laughs) A lot of male on male dot 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 conversation is basically two guys, quote unquote, mansplaining to each other. That's what men tend to do. Like, look at like, I, I think back to the old forum days, I've been talking about that a lot lately, like back in the day when men, when when online message boards and forums were mainly a social club for men and boys. It was basically nonstop mansplaining to each other. But when it's done to women, they feel like it's a symptom of oppression, and maybe it is in some cases, but I, as the the original kind of use of the term, the reason for the invention of the buzzword, because I mean, the way that process works is, here's an idea that takes a little bit to explain it. And it's something that maybe a lot of people have observed, but they've never really put it into words. Someone comes up with a buzzword or catchphrase that encapsulates that idea, and people start using that because it's a shortcut. That explains... Like, using that word communicates something efficiently. But then people only use that word. We're like, people stopped defining mansplaining. And they started using this new word. And they were so excited by this new word they could use to describe what I believe is a real phenomenon. Whether or not it's truly men versus women or just something men do to everybody. I think that's more likely. I think men do that to each other. And we just know that about each other. But when women are subjected to it, I think they tend to feel that it's misogynistic. And maybe sometimes it is. But anyway, like people started using this word mansplaining. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rinse my mouth out with soap after this episode. So don't worry. You should probably clean your ears out too. You're going to hear me say mansplaining so many fucking times. But, you know, a, a word like that comes out. It speaks to people. But then they only use that word. And they're so excited by that word, they look for opportunities to use it. And when I was hanging out with a lot of liberal women around the time that word came out. That was like the peak of my adult social life was when, (laughs) was around the time that mansplaining became a popular term. And I would just, you would hear it so often. It was like, if you had a friend who worked in a cafe and hung out with them after their shift, it was pretty much without fail. They'd be like, oh, a guy came in and he started mansplaining to me about like, you know, it was like that kind of thing. And you could tell that people were jumping at the opportunity to call out mansplaining. And some of the examples that I remember hearing, I was like, that doesn't really sound like that's what he was doing. And I can't say that first, because it's unimportant. It's unimportant to my friendship with a woman to point out like, to you know, you, that's just a trap. I mean, that's a trap is what that is to try to defend some guy that they accused of mansplaining. But I got this distinct feeling that they were jumping for opportunities to use it, even when it didn't apply. And that's how I felt watching this show last night where this woman was talking about like some guy in her Instagram comments responding to her very black and white take on abortion with like an, a description of some of the deeper nuances that he sees in it. And the fact that she jumped to calling it mansplaining, like nothing the guy said was trying to explain anything to her. He just responded to a public post by a notable person who until last night, I had never heard of. I've never heard of any of these people. It reminds me of, you know, I've talked before about, uh, I went through a few years where I was like practically addicted to this game called football mogul. And it was this game that was developed by this guy. He, he, it, the more well-known game that he developed is called baseball mogul. And so baseball mogul was a success. So he developed football mogul. And all it is, is you, it's like the interface of the game, you just download it and it's like staring at a spreadsheet. I'm not even exaggerating. You never actually see a football field. You never actually play the game of football. All you're doing is like managing the players, drafting players, deciding on a playbook, and then you click a button that simulates the game. And if you've made a better team, there's a better chance that you'll have a good team. I love that. You know, Madden franchise mode used to allow you to do that too. And I used to do, before football mogul was even a, a gleam in my eye, I used to play Madden and just do that, where you never actually play the game, you just sit there and you manage the team, you basically pretend that you are the general manager or the coach, I mean, I promise I'm not autistic, (laughs) because that's that's basically the most autistic I I get, is the fact that I'm willing to play a game for hours on end, where all you do is stare at a glorified spreadsheet with statistics of players and trading players. It's just crazy. But you could do that in Madden. So I started doing that in Madden back in the day. And no doubt, the invention of games like Football Mogul, they met a demand because it turns out a lot of people like doing that. I used to just get stoned and just manage this team. And like I had this whole vision too of like, it was like a story of me as this new coach who takes over a team. It was like I was living my own Friday Night Lights through Football Mogul. But the thing is, it would get really depressing because initially, like all the players are real players because like and you could download the current roster. So even if you were using an old version of Football Mogul, the guy who made it and it really was just this one guy, it wasn't a team or anything. He would he would do updated roster lists. So if there was a new if there was a new NFL season, you could download the new roster and like patch it into the game so that the roster is updated. But if you play enough, eventually you'll, you'll go through the draft and each draft is all fake players. Because obviously, I mean, this, this isn't, uh, you know, Nostradamus. Nostradami didn't design this game. Like, there's no way to predict who the players, are, who, who the college football players are going to be in 2030. So it creates fake players and you draft them. And if you play that game long enough... Like if you play for hours and hours, if you play for like 20 like twenty years of game seasons, like if you play for 20 seasons, you'll eventually reach a point where every single player in the league is fake. There's no players that actually exist in real life because you've been playing it for 20 years. So the game has auto-generated all of these fake players. And there was one night, more than one night, where I was sitting there and I'd been playing the game for hours. I was really stoned. And I realized that all of the players in the game were fake. They were all people I had never heard of. And it made me extremely depressed. It made me extremely lonely. Like, it's like the game disconnects from reality at that point. Like, when the last real-life player retires in your fake football league and all the rest of the players are fake, they were generated by this video game. There's something really dark and depressing about that. And honestly, that's kind of how I feel when I look at pop culture today. Like I've been disconnected from pop culture for a long time, but just as an example, like the last couple of days, I was just like scanning the news and I saw, you know, the MTV VMAs. And then last night, this, you know, uh, what I call elite prom or Instagram prom, which is this Met Gala, Met Gala thing. Um, Where all these people, like, these celebrities pretend to be weirder than they are. But I don't know who any of them are. And I know that's such a cliche old man thing. Like, I don't even know who these people are. It's true, though. Like, I was looking at these names of people who attended these events, the VMAs and Elite Prom, and I didn't didn't know who any of them were. And I got the same exact feeling that I get when I played Football Mogul for, like, 10 hours straight, where there's not a single original real-life player left. And I almost feel like these people who are attending the VMAs and Met Gala, these new celebrities, they almost just feel like a machine generated them. They might as well be fake football players generated by football mogul. I look at them and I'm just like, they just, they don't even feel like there's any substance to them. It just feels like some alternate reality spit out these bots. But anyway... With, um, I don't know, going back to <laughs> the, uh, the, the abortion thing, I don't remember what got me on talking about football mogul. I don't know, just that idea though like, with more time passing, it's like you get more and more disconnected from, from those kinds of things. And, uh. I mean, I guess and a lot of those people are famous because of TikTok. I guess that's that does fit in where a lot of those people to me who I see like these names I see of new celebrities, a lot of them got famous through YouTube and TikTok through even if they're musicians, it's like they got famous through SoundCloud or this or that. And they do kind of feel like they're just robots generated by the system, which is such a deep point, dude oh, dude, that's deep. They're just all robots generated by the system. But that is the feeling I get. And I guess it was kind of refreshing to see this woman last night where she didn't feel that way. She's clearly thinking for herself to some degree, even though she uses terms like mansplaining, even though she's wearing a shirt that says hysterical female. I'm sure I would have plenty to disagree with her about. But I could just tell that she has a good baseline But what she kept saying over and over again throughout this two-hour episode was that she's terrified and extremely paranoid about saying the wrong thing. And Rick Glassman's funny because he played on that where he's like, he was asking her questions and he's like, what do you think about transgender people? What do you think about gay people? And he was doing it just to make her nervous, putting her on the spot about these issues. But she was saying continually of how scared she is And how much she doesn't like that. Like it's not that she's, it's not that she's struggling to, to learn what's acceptable behavior. It's that she understands that people are after each other for reasons other than that people are trying to impose their will for reasons other than just making sure everybody's a decent person. But it was just telling to me watching this because it just Rick Glassman's show manages to be pretty detached from all of that stuff. And so hearing from this young younger Instagram TikTok star that she's under a lot of stress because of the culture war a lot of unnecessary stress, even though she agrees with some of the big talking points like she agrees with the abortion stance she's a feminist. And she's still paralyzed, like she was talking about like how much anxiety she has over just posting videos over the slightest negative feedback. So even though this is a young woman who's in many ways in her element, she's a woman She believes in seemingly many of the liberal talking points. And even she feels completely paralyzed by what's going on. So that tells me it's just it's infected everybody. Where even if you're not mad about it, even if you don't feel a a certain sense of outrage about it, you're at the very least nervous about it. You're very concerned about how your words will be perceived, what context they will be received in. And I think you have to stop caring about that to some degree. Because it doesn't serve you to feel that way. But that's something that we increasingly feel socially too, and that's the most difficult part of all. Part. I said, that t- I said that T very distinctly. Part. Now That's the most difficult part of all, because it seemed like your friends and a social setting was the place where you could just kind of say something off the top of your head and you're not going to be judged by it. People aren't going to remember it. They're not going to hold on to it. Unless it's very egregious or your demeanor was hostile, people aren't going to really care. But we're in an age where like even a a young woman who's in her element, she's popular. She has a bunch of fans. Just for making silly videos. She agrees with a lot of what these people agree with. But she can't pretend to be cross-eyed without somebody flipping out on her. And it obviously greatly upsets her. Like it obviously damages her in some way when someone responds that way. And you know, maybe she should be tougher. You know, maybe she shouldn't care as much, you know, because there's a lot of people who get I mean, look at Trump's felt like I was saying throughout his entire presidency, no human being on Earth. Has been psychically attacked, not even not not just out loud, like not just protesters, not just people on the news, but just the number of people who are wishing ill upon him, the number of people who are making nasty comments, I would be willing to bet that he has the Guinness Book, the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, the mo- he's the most publicly hated human being in history because of how many people can express themselves. It's not that, you know, in history there might have been people who were equally hated, but we have so much access to these people. Like, people can get online, at least they could, and see what he was saying on Twitter. They would see him on TV. I think he probably received more negativity than any other human being in history. And he responded to it, but you could tell it didn't bother him. You could tell that Trumpsfeld wasn't bothered, that it actually fueled him. He was fueled by people's hate for him. I think he still is. So you can see that, like, you know, at some point, like some people can handle that. Some other there are other people like, you know, you'll hear from people like Joe Rogan, who he also gets a lot of negative feedback, even from his own fans. Even Joe Rogan's own fans hate on him a lot for whatever reason. And he said he, does ne- he never looks at the comments. So some people survive by just not even looking. But this younger video star, like she's obviously looking. She's obviously looking at the way that people respond to her and it's deeply affecting her. Like she's staring into the abyss in that regard. but it's hard to avoid cuz the abyss has made itself available to you the abyss has made itself readily available to you and so it's hard not to look into it but that might be a <laughs> that might be a, a good opportunity to learn how to not make eye contact with it maybe this is where my skill and i would never call it a skill but maybe it is one of Learning how to not make sustained eye contact or to not require it. Maybe that's a a, a take on this where, you know, you can glance in the abyss. Sometimes you can look at it, you know, more than you should. But don't sustain eye contact with it forever. But it's staring at us, I think, more than it ever has. Simply because we have so many, there are so many different ways that it can get to us. And even if you're a Ted Kaczynski, like even if you're a Ted Kaczynski, who goes and lives in a cabin without modern technology, even if you're a Luddite, or you try to live some traditional life where you live on a farm, you know, it's still all around you. You're still surrounded by it. You can go off the grid, you can convince yourself that you're off the grid. But if you just look out your window, the grid is surrounding you. So you really can't escape. You really can't escape the grid. Even if you manage to get into a position where you're not entirely dependent on the grid. The grid is still all around you. And even if you're not looking at the grid, the grid is looking at you. And the way people talk about the quote unquote grid. Isn't that much different from the abyss. Like when someone tries to go off the grid, what they're essentially saying is I'm trying to avoid staring into the abyss. But that can be very difficult when it's all around you when there's so many different access points. If every single window that you look out of stares into the abyss, you know, at some point, you have to look out the window. And that's kind of how I feel right now. I feel like I either have to completely shut myself off from everything right now, which it's, it's good to do that sometimes. Or I just inevitably end up staring at the abyss. I end up staring at the grid. And it does feel like even just looking out the window right now is doing that. But I can tell you right now I am looking out the window more than I'd like. But it does somehow feel necessary. It feels like there are so many moving pieces right now. And I don't know what I'm looking for. But it feels like there are so many moving pieces that I just feel the need to keep my eye on them. Because something very interesting is happening. And I think that's what makes me... That's kind of my justification. Because if I'm not finding anything interesting... Well, I'm probably going to start looking somewhere else. Because again, it does go back to like, what do you feel like doing? And not out of habit. Like you don't want to form a habit around paying attention to things that disturb you. But when you feel like paying attention, maybe you should. And then when you start to notice that you're losing interest, because that's what happens with habits, is that a habit or an addiction it's something that initially interested you. It's something that initially gave you something. But like the law of diminishing returns, it's like the more that you pay attention to that, there's a higher chance that you're going to lose interest or exhaust your interest. But the real the danger of a habit or an addiction is that you keep doing it even after you've lost interest. And that happens with drugs and alcohol. Like I think about my drinking where I got a lot out of drinking. I would never say anything bad about drinking itself. We know what the downsides are. The downside is just horror. The downside of drinking is horror. There's a lot of opportunity for personal horror that can also impact other people when you drink. But I would never demonize drinking itself. I would never ask for a prohibition again, you know, or anything like that. Because I got a lot out of it at one point. But at some point, it stopped providing me with anything interesting. Because drinking used to be fun. It was an adventure. It was all even if you're just hanging out at a bar or, or your house, it was kind of this adventure. But then it reached a point where it was no longer an adventure. It was no longer interesting. And I'd already been doing it too much, even after my interest had dissipated. And so that was a sign to me that I had to quit for, for biological health reasons, on top of everything else I had to quit, for mental health reasons I had to quit, but also simply because I lost interest in it. And when you've lost interest in something and you keep doing it, well, that's misery. That is horrible. So I think the same applies to doing almost anything where it's like if you're feeling captivated by something, if you're, if you're interested in something, that's a sign that you can potentially get something out of the experience, even if it's not good. Like feeling kind of obsessed with current events lately, being infected by politics, this never-ending culture war. I do believe my interest in that is giving me something. But I have to pay careful attention, and when it doesn't feel like it's doing anything for me, when I'm no longer interested in it, I don't want to just keep paying attention by rote. I don't want it to be a habit. And for many people it is. For many people it is a habit that they just can't quit. But I don't even think of it as, as something that you need to quit. You know, some things you do. I had to quit drinking. I've had to quit doing other things. But I'm not going to quit paying attention to what's going on. I'm not going to quit thinking critically about it. I'm certainly not going to quit making fun of it or having fun with it. But you do have to pay attention to that. And so when I start to see people like this TikTok girl, this TikTok woman, excuse me, she's she's a TikTok woman. You know, when I see people like her and on a show that is extremely apolitical. Rick Glassman does a great job at making his show apolitical. It's far more about human interaction than it is anything else, which is actually far more interesting to me than politics. But it's a show about human interaction and comedy. And to see a young woman on a show like that, who is a liberal feminist who is outspoken about what she believes most of which is in line with the dominant culture right now on the left but to see that she too not just feels like she's walking on eggshells but seems to be in a, in a state of neurotic distress not that she was going not that she was over the top about it but you could just tell you could tell when anything even remotely controversial came up you could tell when she was talking about the sort of climate that she exists in, that it causes her a certain amount of neurotic distress and anxiety and fear and paranoia to simply be a human being communicating, trying to be funny. That should tell you something's wrong. And it is. Something is definitely wrong. And when something is wrong, like... You want to keep looking at it because you want to pinpoint what it is that's that's wrong, hopefully with the intention of trying to fix it. But I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fix it. But I admit I already readily admit myself where it's like, I don't I don't necessarily agree with. A lot of what I don't necessarily agree with with a lot of what people are imposing on others right now. And I feel less nervous than this girl I was watching last night. I could just tell I could tell that I'm far less nervous about it. Maybe maybe because her entire circle, like I'm guessing all of her friends, I'm guessing, certainly all of her fans are very politically conscious, and I'm sure they're all on the left, most of them So maybe part of it is that like she feels like she has more to lose if she says or does the wrong thing. Whereas I don't feel like I have that much to lose. I just hope that nobody tries to smear me for saying the wrong thing. Not that anybody would. This is a very um, private show at this point, I think. But still, like, like, I think that I have less to lose in that regard. And my beliefs, I, I have enough beliefs that are different from that, too. Like I have, I feel like enough of a separation between myself and this amorphous, persistent, scolding, censoring mass that exists out there in the public. There's enough separation between me and them to where I, I don't have, they don't concern me too much. But I feel it myself I sometimes feel it myself And I mean I was doing some writing Last month And when I was writing I was writing about the mafia Some historical mafia research And I was, ta- I was, I was writing a part I'd been I'd, I, stood up, I stayed up for 40 hours straight One weekend I stayed up pretty much The entire weekend Writing 40 hours straight It was bizarre But uh, when I was writing like, There was one point Where like, I I was writing about these men coming to the US from Italy and it just crossed my mind briefly like how we now live in a world where it's like just saying these men came from here how like there's this need to to contextualize that now in this bizarre new way where it's like if you're just writing about a general group of men, there are people out there who would say, well we don't know if they all identified as men and that's a stupid joke that I'm making. But that's sort of it. enter the fact that it enters my mind at all is crazy to me. The fact that when I'm writing about these men who came over from Italy, 150 years ago, the fact that it even crossed my mind for a brief second, whether or not to refer to them simply as men, or to use something not, I don't play into all the weird shit. But the fact that like it crossed my mind at all, whether or not I should simply say men or people. And that all comes from when I was younger and I when I would write when I was younger, I would use the masculine he if I was if I was referring to a theoretical person. Even if sex and gender were not a part of what I was discussing, I would simply say he. Like, if a man were to do this, he would do this. Like, I would, and teachers, as well as I had a friend, this girl that I knew in high school. And I remember her reading some of my writing and being like, well, you need to use he or she. And teachers were hammering that home too. Because a lot of text in history used the masculine. But because I'm writing as a man, that's just simply what came natural to me. And, I, and, and two, it's like you're told not to make things too wordy. You're always, t- and I'm a wordy person to begin with. If I write or talk at length, it's going to be at length. I'm not very good at the whole like brevity is the soul of wit. And I don't, I don't even believe in that entirely. Sometimes brevity is the soul of wit. Sometimes elaboration is the soul of wit. Turns out you need both. It's kind of like I was saying with buzzwords. Because like when someone comes up with a buzzword, One of the reasons that's so attractive is it's that sort of brevity is the soul of wit logic, where Oh, here's something that we can say much more concisely, and have the same meaning. But when you rely on brevity for too long, you actually lose the you lose many of the details that originally led you to condense what you were saying. And so yeah, brevity is the soul of wit. Sometimes. But then it's like an accordion that has to be pulled out again, where brevity can only be relevant for so long before you have to elaborate again. But just going back to the he or she thing, like just on a simple level of space, you know, you might not want to have to include an extra two words. It's, It's probably unimportant, but if you're writing something long that uses a lot of theoretical examples of people, hypothetical people writing he or she throughout your entire paper that adds a lot of extra space you know, or that adds a lot of extra material you know but anyway that was kind of hammered home to me when i was a teenager teachers as well as that friend she was a writer she was she pursued a career in writing very smart person but um, she told me to write he or she my teachers said that but now we're at a point where even that you're not supposed to do that you know you're you're encouraged to like be even more general. your language needs to include these other identities that have appeared. So I think some of my when I was writing a month ago and I was referring to these men who are freaking mafia members they're men it just it, it it was one of those moments where I was just kind of sad because I was like the fact that it even crossed my mind at all whether or not I should simply refer to these guys as men. Or use something more general. Not that I cater to any social political perspective when I write or I communicate. But just the fact that it crossed my mind. I think it was especially telling because I was in such a pure state. Writing like, like writing, was just pouring out of me. I was very happy with what I was writing. I felt that I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And then it was like this little piece of dirt crossed my, my vision. And that little piece of dirt was me thinking, oh, should I say men? Or should I say people? Or should I be really ridiculous and make a stupid joke and be like, in 1874, a ship of men from Italy came over and the ship contained these two guys who were mafiosi. But we don't actually know that they identified as men. We don't actually know if one of them Might not have identified as a man. You know, it's like you can easily get sucked into that bizarre way of thinking. But because I don't really give a fuck, because I don't really give a shit about that, beyond what's just basically tactful, you know, beyond just trying to be polite and tactful in my life, I don't give a shit about pandering to all that. But I was thinking about this girl last night and I. I know I keep going on about it, but it was just a moment because like I guess it's kind of the same thing. We're like I think of Rick Glassman's show as fairly pure. There's something almost childlike about it actually, in a not in an obnoxious way. There's this sort of like childlike curiosity about the way his show is set up. So it is kind of pure in that way. And then I when I put it on last night, I was like, Oh, I'm gonna be this is gonna be an hour this is gonna be a two hour long break from all of the culture war concerns that surround me. And then sure enough, it's a young woman who feels paralyzed and paranoid by the culture war and today's imposition of certain groups political will. So it was, it was kind of like that same speck of dirt. A speck of dirt. But something in my gut is telling me to keep paying attention right now. Something in my gut is saying, don't avoid this stuff right now. Now is the time to be paying attention. Whether or not I get anything from it, whether or not it opens up new doorways in my mind, there is something inside of me that's saying, pay attention to this right now, even at the expense of other valuable things in my life, like not taking care of myself. (laughs) That'd be insane. But I just mean like, don't worry about drawing. Don't worry about doing this. Yeah, there's practical stuff to worry about. But pay attention. Something inside of me is saying, pay close attention right now. This land Where children can run.